0: Thank you, a pastor friend of mine back in Virginia asked me not too long ago, how can you tell when a lawyer's lying? And I said, Wayne, I don't know. How can you tell when a lawyer's lying? She says, his lips are moving. (laughs) Well, I'm uh, going to disregard that as any kind of humor. Lincoln once said about one lawyer that he could compress more words into the smallest idea, better than any man he'd ever met. And we've been compressing uh, words into, I think, some large ideas, the sovereignty of God in the last few days. And I guess if you walk away from this series with nothing else than an impression that God is alive, that he's real, that he's involved, that he's active, that he's sovereign, then we've accomplished our objective. For too many of us, God is an idea We're very Greek in our thinking We need to be more Hebrew Recognize that God wore sandals He walked amongst us The Word became flesh He died, He rose again And today the Word is again to become flesh Through us if we don't live it out, no one will live it out. And he will give us all the strength we need to do just that. We've left with you, as a token of our investment in the Master's College, some books for your library. They were displayed yesterday at the gym and we'll drop them off at the library. In addition, we want to invest in your life this little book, The Reason Why, not for you to use for your own purposes, since in terms of, I'd like to have you read it so you get a feel for the book, but it's given to you with one goal in mind, and that is that you pass it on. Freely you've received, freely you give. On March 30th, 1980... I received a call from the Los Angeles Times asking me to comment on a clergy malpractice lawsuit filed against Grace Community Church. I'd never heard of such a suit. There'd never been a suit like that. And when they mentioned the name of the family, all of a sudden I began to understand. I called John up that evening and we discussed this fact that we were now the first and our conclusion was that we were very thankful that we were first. That this was his plan because there was no case better situated to deal with this particular issue of counseling than this particular one. We knew it was going to be painful, costly in time of time and resources, but we are very grateful that Monday evening that we were first. We applied Paul's golden rule for losers in everything give thanks And it's proven out as we look back as we shared on Wednesday Life can only be understood backwards But must be lived forward as we look back on these past six years And longer It's clear that God is sovereign As a result of that trial lawyers do get paid for handling trials and Technically I was a volunteer as far as the insurance company was concerned, Dave Cooksey was the official insurance company lawyer, so I volunteered my time. But the insurance company saw fit to reward a volunteer after the trial, and they sent me a check for $30,000. Now, yes, I heard that whistle over there. <laughs> now, I, my wife and I had planned, had some plans for that money to pay off some items and loans, but we felt there were more important things to do with that money and that was to invest it in other people and so over a few weeks time we negotiated some tremendous deals with book publishers in fact I became a publisher's dream as some book publishers told me buying quantities of books to pass on to lawyers, pastors and others so that we could take something that was intended for evil which was that lawsuit and turn it right around for good And I believe that more pastors and more lawyers and more public school teachers and students have been blessed by that one case in a tangible way than any other case in history. Because we have distributed untold thousands of books, including the reason why 12,000 copies for people to pass on and tell the great news, the great message that God is sovereign, that Christ lives. So how do you turn evil to good? You ask the Lord for wisdom and you turn it right around because he is a sovereign God. The theme, the sovereignty of God in law, in religion, in peacemaking. I should mention as a footnote yesterday, I mentioned one book, the the book Loving God, that I had sent out to a number of families. And I mentioned the one that got to Jane Fonda. It turns out, and I didn't know this until afterwards, The family that I sent that book to, who passed it on to Jane Fonda, happened to come and visit yesterday at the morning lecture. Is that chance? Also, Ralph Sowers, he walked into my office in the spring of 1982 with a, he was a student at Capitol Bible Seminary at the time, with uh, a young man who was facing a terrible future, years in prison because of drug issues. And we spent a number of hours talking about the issue of, is it ever right to lie and deceive, to save a marriage, to save a life? That was four years ago, five years ago now, four years ago, and... He's here with us, again, small world, and there's a joy to see him. One of the greatest challenges for any of us as Christians is to integrate our faith with our practice. What I'd like to do this morning is to suggest a grid through which to filter some of the issues that we face as Christians as we desire to follow Christ in our lives. And I want to speak in terms of a lawyer, though this is not just for lawyers, this is Cuts across the board. A lawyer functions primarily in three areas: as an advocate, as a counselor, and as a mediator. Now, it's very difficult to separate those out in actual practice, but we're going to function, or we're going to this morning focus on his function as an advocate. Even though we'll weave in and out of the roles of mediator and counselor. Now, generally, the role of a lawyer as an advocate has been defined as that of asserting the legal rights of his client a biblical definition of that role however goes much deeper in first John 2 1 John writes if any one sins we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous the Greek word that's translated advocates in this passage is paraclete John uses the word paraclete in the above passage and again in John 14:16 and 26, John 15:26 and John 16:7 the word paraclete is translated helper. The root of the word paraclete contains the idea of advising, exhorting, comforting, strengthening, interceding and encouraging. Thus the biblical concept of the paraclete or the advocate or the helper is one who advises, who exhorts, who comforts, who strengthens, who intercedes and encourages a person. Obviously, these are ideas much broader in scope than the more traditional definition of an advocate is one who asserts the legal rights of his client. This morning, I want to focus in on this broader definition of the advocate as we seek to develop an ethic for Christians in law. The Gospel records at least five encounters that Christ had with members of the legal profession of his day. These men, the learned of the law or Naaman and I'm not a Greek scholar, so here we go, appear to be a class above the grammaticus, or scribes. The scribes may have been more akin to our paralegals, our notary publics, our town clerks, our secretaries, rather than the professional lawyers. I suggest that we may glean from two of these five encounters some principles that will help us articulate a Christian ethic for us in law. No doubt any of us with a cursory knowledge of the New Testament is aware of these two encounters. Luke 1025 to 37 documents the first encounter. In those verses, Jesus responds to a lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Undoubtedly, the lawyer received much more than he bargained for when Christ answered with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The second encounter may well be the legal profession's least favorite section of scripture. Luke eleven forty five to 52, Christ rebukes the legal profession in the strongest possible terms. No doubt many lawyers would like to clip that chapter out and file it away in their desk. A discussion of ethics, even within the context of scriptures, can become rather abstract and almost totally useless to the practitioner unless we have some point of reference and some example. And therefore, I'd like to share... An experience as an attorney that I had some years ago here in Southern California that will illustrate the principles identified in the two encounters that Christ had with these lawyers. In November of 1978, I met Dismas Lizaraga for the first time. Dismas approached me after Sunday morning service at Grace Church and asked me if he could talk to me in private. Dismas told me that he was 23 years old, a native of British Honduras, now called Belize. In February of 1978, Dismas had entered the United States with $700 in his pocket to buy a used car. See, in Belize, a used car that costs $700 here costs $10,000 down there. Intending to return immediately to Belize, Belize. Dismas failed to obtain the necessary visas and crossed the border illegally. He was an undocumented alien. After buying the car and getting set to return home, Dismas became seriously ill. He was taken to a hospital and the physicians diagnosed his problem as absolute kidney failure. As a result he was put on kidney dialysis program requiring treatment three days a week at a cost of $2,500 a month or $30,000 a year. His friends cautioned him not to reveal that he was an illegal alien, but to tell the physicians and the hospital authorities that he was from Puerto Rico, thereby qualifying for state and federal medical aid. Soon afterwards, Dismas discovered that Belize did not have any kidney dialysis equipment. As a result, his pregnant wife, Rosie, and their one-year-old son crossed the border to be with him. They also failed to obtain the necessary visas and entered the United States illegally. Soon after their arrival, Rosie gave birth to a second son. In March of 1978, after meeting some college students from Grace Community Church who would go to the L.A. County General Hospital for witnessing, As a result of that ministry Dismas accepted Christ And when he was released from the hospital he started attending Grace Church At a November meeting Dismas told me That he now wanted to do what was right in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man And asked me that Sunday If I would be his advocate Now I questioned whether or not I should even handle this matter and serve as his lawyer it was obvious that it would have would be have to be on a pro bono, a free basis, because Dismas had no money to pay lawyers. Moreover, in my busy schedule as the administrator and counsel for the largest church in Los Angeles County, congregation at that time of some fifteen thousand people, I really didn't have much time to devote to an area of law of which I was very little familiar. I questioned the wisdom of setting aside other priorities, effective programs involving scores and in some cases even thousands of people in order to defend this illegal alien who was in a small way representative of perhaps the most difficult legal, social, political and economic problem facing the southwestern United States. And to make matters worse, I did not know any competent immigration attorneys who could do and would do pro bono work for Dismas. As I wrestled with the issue of the representation, I once again reviewed the encounter Christ had with the lawyer in Luke 10, 25 to 37. In that incident, a certain lawyer seeking to put Christ to the test, he was obviously a litigator, asked Christ what he must do to inherit eternal life. Christ led the law, let the lawyer answer his own question by pointing him to the law, specifically the commandments. The lawyer responded by quoting the great commandments you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself interesting footnote is christ said that twice he summed up the decalogue two times in that statement both times in conversations with lawyers why with lawyers because lawyers need to be reminded that as power brokers They are not the source of the law. He is the source of the law. And we need to acknowledge him, to love God first and foremost. And then we need to recognize as lawyers that everything we do in law affects somebody. And we need to love our neighbor and make sure that whatever we do is done lovingly. We needed to be reminded, and Christ has indeed done that for us. Now, while Christ expressed approval of this lawyer's answer, the lawyer was not ready to rest his case. Instead, wishing to justify himself, a characteristic not unfamiliar to lawyers or others, the lawyer asked Jesus the loaded question, And who is my neighbor? At this point, Jesus gave what I consider to be the most clear-cut job description of any profession recorded in the New Testament. Because it is unmistakably addressed to a lawyer, one cannot help but conclude that the job that Jesus has described is at least that of the legal profession. But it is also the standard of all of us. While the parable of the Good Samaritans is a very familiar one, it deserves reading. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages. And gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? It should be noted that at the end of the story, Christ has turned the question around. The lawyer had asked, Who is my neighbor? Give me a list of my neighbors. Christ, as he always did, Changed the issue and changed the question by saying who proved to be neighborly. The issue is never the other person. The issue is not who is my neighbor. The issue is are you neighborly. The issue is never the other person. The issue is always you. The boy responded by saying. The one who showed mercy toward him. He was neighborly. And the word mercy here means to have compassion for the unfortunate. And here is where Christ gave the command to the lawyer to go and do the same. It doesn't say what the lawyer did. There is no report. But the issue is not what that lawyer did. The issue is what should I do with Dismas? As I evaluated his situation... I realized that I could not first of all control the types of individuals and needs that God brings across my path as a lawyer But I can control my response to those needs Second as I reflected upon the contrast between the priest and the Levite the professionals of the day the clergy and the social workers of the day I Remember that Jesus observed that the Samaritan felt compassion for the man at the side of the road As a lawyer who professes Christ as Lord, I must have a heart for people. I must have compassion. The good Samaritan assisted the man without considering the man's ability to repay him and without second-guessing or judging the wisdom of the man traveling alone on a rather hazardous and dangerous road. Third, I realized that when the Samaritan saw the need, he took the initiative. He came to him. And met his immediate need. How often is it that we, lawyers or others, see needs and fail to take the initiative? Don't call me, I'll call you. That's wrong. Indifference is the opposite of love. Fourth, I noted that the Samaritan used the best resources available at his disposal to meet the man's immediate needs. Now, even though I had very little exposure to immigration law or that legal system and its fraternity of lawyers, I felt that I was at least responsible to use the limited bandages, oil, and wine that I had available. Having limited legal resources and knowledge was not a legitimate excuse for me to say to Dismas, I can't help you. Fifth, I noticed that the Samaritan took an entire day out of his busy schedule in order to assist the man at the side of the road. True, he hired the innkeeper to take care of the man, but he did not do so until the next day. Thus, as part of our ethic as Christians, we must be willing to put our time at the disposal of those in need. It is at this point that our faith will often be tested. Do we really have time to help people in need? While delegation of responsibility was an appropriate means of helping Dismas, at the very least... If I was unwilling or unable to take care of the case myself, I would have to try to find a lawyer to help him out. I might even have to be willing to pick up the legal fee out of my own pocket because the Samaritan paid the innkeeper for taking care of the man at the side of the road. Well, after our initial meeting, I told Dismas that I would serve as his attorney and do the best I could. We both concluded that it was wrong to continue to receive benefits from the government on the basis of false statements that he was a Puerto Rican. So as a first step, I wrote a letter to the District Director for Immigration and Naturalization Service for the Southwestern United States, sent copies to our U.S. Senators and Congressmen. Without disclosing his name or whereabouts, I informed the director about the nature of Dismas's case mentioning that he could not return to his own country because his country did not have dialysis and that within seven days he would be a dead man if he didn't get dialysis treatment. I inquired whether or not there were any remedies available under applicable laws for Dismas and his family to remain together in the United States and if no legal remedies were available, could the U.S. consider this a case worthy of mercy? Two weeks later, I received my letter back with the following blue note stapled to the original letter unsigned. There are no laws or provisions for these persons who have entered the United States illegally. They must obtain legal visas from outside the United States. Dismas and I found ourselves now in a most difficult position. If we were to disclose his whereabouts and his legal status, he could possibly jeopardize his life by being deported. If he were not deported, there was certainly the probability that his wife and children would be sent back to Belize since they were not in need of special medical treatment. Thus, even assuming that the immigration authorities allowed Dismas to stay on, on humanitarian grounds, it was less likely that the same mercy would be shown to his family. Our faith was indeed on trial faith, doing that which is right regardless of the consequences. The question simply put was this, should we make full disclosure? Is it ever right to lie to save a life? Is it ever right to lie to save a marriage? Should I, as an advocate, make full disclosure, tell the truth, and perhaps jeopardize the family unit and possibly even his life? Or should he continue living in California as a Puerto Rican and thereby preserve the family unit, preserve his life, and perhaps never be discovered among the millions of undocumented aliens who reside in this state? As we attempted to resolve these issues, I saw five different ethical options. One of these five was unthinkable to a Christian. Dismas and I could not assume that lying or deception was neither right nor wrong. The teaching of Judges 21:25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That forbids us Christians to assume that lying is neutral. According to some, a second option may be more attractive. While lying may may be generally wrong, some would argue that lying can be right if it produces a good result. Our choice would turn on whether we believe that making full disclosure to the authorities would result in a happy ending. However, if the disclosure led to the deportation of either Dismas or his family, then the disclosure would be viewed as a bad decision and therefore wrong. This option, based on such circular reasoning, did not help because it depended on what would happen in the future and nobody knows the future but God. The ends do not justify the means because the means are the ends in the making. The third option was more difficult. We could adopt a position popularly identified as situational ethics. According to its chief spokesman, Joseph Fletcher, all laws, rules, and principles, all ideals and norms are valid only if they happen to serve the absolute law of love in the particular case. That appealed to us as Christians because it appeared consistent with Christ's teaching that love is the greatest commandment. Moreover, it appeared obvious to us that it was loving to make every effort to save Waltissimus' life and to preserve his family unit. After all, who would really be hurt by it all? The cost of the dialysis when spread over the community at large was very little. But how to define love was the real problem. Is saving a life and preserving a family unit always a clear expression of love? Is it not true that Christ said repeatedly that the mark of true Christians was that they had love one for another? Yet that Christ was willing to sacrifice his own life and die as a gift for us. Demonstrates that saving a life is not always the most loving act. Having rejected the situational ethic, we found ourselves face to face with another attractive option for Christians. While it's true that lying is wrong and that saving lives is right, could it be that the latter norm was more important, that the former could be sacrificed to achieve the latter? After all, did not the Hebrew midwives deceive and disobey the Egyptian Pharaoh in order to save the lives of Hebrew male infants? And were not those midwives blessed of God? Did not Rahab also enjoy the blessings of God when she lied to protect the Israel's spies in order to save her family? Why should Dismas not be equally entitled to place his obligation to his life and to his family above his obligation to the laws of the United States government? Now, all of these options were tempting. We finally concluded that the government's immigration laws were not comparable to Pharaoh's, nor was Dismas caught up in the situation of Rahab, whether that made any difference in any event. Still, the temptation to hide and to deceive was great. Yet, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, and this proved to be the principle that we applied in Dismas's case. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Dismas, Rosie, and I discussed this and other biblical principles and concluded that the morally and biblically right thing to do in this case would be to make full disclosure and expect God to provide a way of escape. This was risky. We knew it. We approached the immigration service and made full disclosure. Their first step was to order Dismas deported. For 18 months, we worked on the case, and we saw the sovereignty of God in action. Grace Church employed Dismas at one of the thrift stores. We had five thrift stores at the time that were set up to provide employment for students, for single parents, for the handicapped and others. See, Dismas could not get a green card. He could not qualify to work legally, but he could volunteer his services and the church, Grace Church, could meet his needs. That was all right. That was consistent with Scripture. And we did just that. Grace Church also flew Dismas's brothers and sisters up to take tests so that they could have tests for a kidney transplant. This was all done at the church's expense. A group of us went to Dismas's apartment downtown Los Angeles and spent three weekends painting, carpeting, and fixing up their apartment. Finally, When the time for the surgery came, we got word that it was going to cost $35,000. The elders at Ray's Church, after discussing it, said they were willing to have the church pick up the tab if necessary. Yet, a week before the surgery was to take place, the California Supreme Court ruled in a case that surgery of this type could not be denied undocumented aliens. See, the church took a step of faith and did that which was right. And the Lord, through his sovereign way, basically took the burden away. After the surgery, uh, Dismas became very ill, but he pulled out. And in November of 1980... Just two weeks before we left for the East Coast, the Immigration Service gave Dismas a permanent right to stay in the United States as long as his medical condition needed his presence in the United States along with his family. I delegated the responsibility to my assistant, Len Crowley, to continue as his innkeeper as I continued on my journey to the East Coast. In March of 1984, two years ago, Dismas, now the father of five children, bought a used carpet at a flea market, brought it home, rolled it out. And the rug had a fungus in it, and in three weeks' time, Dismas was dead. You ask why? well, why the kidney failure? If Dismas had not had that experience, he would not have wound up at L.A. County USC Hospital. He would not have met college students from Grace Community Church who shared the great message so that he, his wife, his family, as well as many of his siblings down in Belize came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the way I would write it, but God wrote it differently. This brings me to the second encounter which Christ had with the legal profession of his day. In Luke 11, Christ lays down some principles that are very helpful in understanding our role as lawyers, as advocates, as Christians. In that chapter, a Pharisee had invited Christ to have lunch with him. Christ had entered the Pharisee's house and sat down at the table without first ceremonially washing his hands. When a Pharisee saw this, he was shocked. The Lord rebuked his host in the strongest possible terms. Whereupon a lawyer, as is not uncommon among those in our profession, invited himself into the discussion, saying, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us also. Now in my mind's eye, I can picture Christ initially pointing out to the lawyer that the conversation he was having was with the Pharisee. But if the shoe seemed to fit the lawyer, he was welcome to wear it. Then, in no uncertain terms, Jesus rebuked the legal profession of his day. Woe to you, lawyers, as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your father, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. And woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the keys of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those that were entering in, you hindered. I suggest that these rebukes by Christ amplifies an ethic for us as lawyers and as Christians. First, when he pronounced the woe on lawyers for their having weighed men down with burdens hard to bear while they themselves would not even touch the burdens with one of their fingers, he rebuked our tendency to be a burden placer rather than a burden bearer. There is a marked difference between the lawyer as advocate and the lawyer as a hired gun. The lawyer who becomes a mere tool in the hands of his client without regard to the impact of his activity, the burdens, the anxiety, and the fear that he causes is violating Christ's ethic. In Galatians 6.2, Paul wrote that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The antithesis of fulfilling the law of Christ, therefore, is to weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. The advocate or the lawyer or the Christian who believes that he is simply doing his job or representing his client's best interest without bearing that client's burden is practicing law in an unchrist like fashion. The world may say that nice guys finish last and insist that the adversary system only allows for success under the law of the jungle, brute power and intimidation, but a truly Christian lawyer As advocate, must reject that belief and instead must set the tone for modern advocacy by embracing the ethic of Christ of being a burden bearer. As an advocate, he cannot be hostile, he cannot be belligerent, he can only be peaceable and conciliatory. That is our ethic as Christians, to be peacemakers and reconcilers. This does not mean that we neglect the law or that we are, do not prepare a client's legal case. Indeed, one way to weigh men down with burdens hard to bear is to do a poor job for your client by not being prepared and not doing a competent job. That kind of lawyering burdens clients with worry and anxiety about whether or not the job is getting done. In Christ's second rebuke, he charged that the lawyers of his day built the tombs for the prophets whom their fathers killed, and consequently that the lawyers witnessed and approved the deeds of their fathers. I believe that by these words, Christ has warned lawyers not to be advocates who approve and perpetuate oppression. In this statement, Christ recognized that in his day, as is true in our own, the legal profession more than any other profession is responsible for designing, building, maintaining, and perpetuating the system. And if that design, if that building, if that perpetuation leads to oppression, then you are violating Christ's ethic. And you are, in effect, effect, killing the prophets and harming the righteous. We as lawyers who follow Christ must therefore work only for justice and against oppression. In the Old Testament, Micah the prophet wrote these familiar, inspiring words that used to be on the walls of just about every lawyer in the United States until the turn of this century. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God requires all his people, and especially lawyers and advocates, to do justice. The word justice is not difficult to define. It's the same word as righteousness. Righteousness is just an old-fashioned word for what we call right. What are we to do if we are to be righteous people? We are to do that which is right in the eyes of God. Live our lives in a manner that is consistent with this. Because this is the eyes of God. That is the standard. As an example In late 1979 The Los Angeles Department of Building Safety Cited members of a home church For violating zoning laws Alleging that holding Now I'm going to shift that one I want to tell you a story about A little house Next door that Debbie Stones I don't know how many of you know Debbie She's in the wheelchair That Right next door to the church That used to be the caretaker's house, and then the caretaker bought his own house. And the elders decided, in late '78, I believe it was, or, or late '79, that that house would be used for handicap ministry. So the elders approved building ramps and doing all fixing up that house for handicap ministry. Apparently, a neighbor didn't like that idea. And since we were not changing the outward appearance, it just looked like a residence, we were using the back door, we thought it was just a fine idea. Well, we got word from the L.A. City zoning administrator that we had to cease and desist using that house for church purposes. And here was for the handicapped. We just wanted to minister to the handicapped. You mean the city of L.A. is not going to let us minister for the handicapped? Nope, because you need to get a zoning variance for that particular house. Well, we met as elders to decide, what do we do? Do we push for our rights? Because I think we should have been allowed to use it. Well, just before the elders' meeting, I got a call, or John got a call from Johnny Erickson. And Johnny tells John MacArthur that she was planning to move to the West Coast. And she wanted to establish Johnny and Friends as a ministry in this area. And she wanted to use Grace Community Church as a base of operation. And were we aware of any house that was fixed up for a handicapped person near the church? My goodness, did we know of a house fixed up for a handicapped person? And so, in the providence of God, life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forward. That house was already fixed for Johnny Erickson. Now... The point is that when it comes to zoning laws, if the end result is oppression, if the end result is injustice, then we as Christians, as lawyers, need to be about the business of changing those kind of laws. Anytime we see injustice in our system, we need to be about the business of influencing the system to do right, to do justice. Finally, in a third rebuke, Christ accused the lawyers of his day of having abused their power and their knowledge. This is where he said that you've taken away the keys of knowledge and you have not entered in and you won't enter in yourselves. The advocate who follows Christ should appeal for access on behalf of his client and on behalf of the righteous to justice in our system. In a book by Jeremy Rifkin and Ted Howard entitled The Emerging Order, the authors wrote as follows. Access has become a popular new phrase in the political, cultural, and economic life of the nation. People feel they are being denied access to information, to communications, and to decision-making. Lack of access is a major contributor to the sense of mass anxiety. Millions of Americans feel they no longer have control over their decisions that affect their lives. Being frozen out means being denied information necessary to understand one's condition and one's options. Christ made the lame to walk and the blind to see. As Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 22, verse 16, Christ pled, he, pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was, well, it is, is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord. With Christ as the example, we as lawyers have untold opportunities to open a door for their clients to the means whereby true resolution of conflict may take place. It is at this point of providing access to do justice that CLS has, I believe, its most exciting mission, the Christian Conciliation Service. I shared that last night with many of you, how we are using the keys, giving them to the church, giving them to non-lawyers, giving them to pastors, to churches, And last year, the Christian Conciliation Service was able to see 2,000 cases told to the church and another 8,000 cases resolved by encouraging Christians to follow Matthew 18, step one of going to a person in private with whom they have legal disputes. That isn't much, but it is a beginning, and it is giving the keys back to the people who should do justice, which is not just lawyers, but everyone. That is an ethic to follow the parable of the good Samaritan, to have compassion for people in need, to take the initiative when you see the need, to use the resources that you have available to meet the immediate need, to use your time, to give of your time, to be merciful and if necessary to delegate to an innkeeper. In my closing comments, I want to address one last issue, and that is that of success. What is a successful person? We all want to be successful, and Christ wants us to be successful. There is nothing wrong with being successful. The question is, who defines success? In nineteen sixty two, as a senior at Venice High School, where I'd served as student body president, the senior class distributed various honors. They do that in a lot of high schools. You know, best looking, which I thought I was supposed to get, didn't get. Most athletic didn't come my way either. Most intelligent didn't come my way. All of those honors are a statement by your class as to the status of a person at that point in time. You're either best looking or you're not. You're either most artistic or you're not. You're most musical or you're not. But there's one honor that they pass out that is not to be determined until years later. And that's called most likely to succeed. And that's the one they laid on me. That's, an un- that's a backhanded compliment. Because what your class is saying to you is, Show us. In June of 1982, we had our 20th reunion. I decided I would write a letter to my classmates. 350 letters went out to my class of the Empyreans. And I decided to share my testimony as to how the Lord had led me through education, through my job experience, my family, took care of all the stuff, so I didn't have to repeat that 350 times. And then in the last page and a half, I asked this question. What is success? Since you chose me as most likely to succeed, let's ask ourselves, who has succeeded and who has failed? And what is the standard, what ought the standard to be? There are two standards in defining success. The first is the most common. It's the one that I find common in the world and among the vast majority of Christians that I meet. It's summed up in one word, accumulation. The person who accumulates the most wealth, the most education, the most name recognition, the most pleasure, the most power, that person is successful. Because... People think that stuff like that, an accumulation, can fill the God-shaped vacuum that is present in every man. If accumulation is the world standard and the most popular standard, what is God's standard? I believe God's standard is the exact opposite of accumulation. It's summed up in the exact opposite word of giving. For God so loved the world that he gave That's success. His son. Christ stated that no greater love has any man than this, than that he lay down his life, give his life, give the very substance of life to his friends. Paul wrote that Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, gave himself, gave of himself for us. I asked my classmates, What track have you been on for 20 years? The accumulation track? If you have, I'm sure it's come up rather short. Why not review your life, reflect on the past, and redirect the future? And I would challenge you to do the same. If you are inclined to think that success is defined in accumulation, whatever terms, reflect on it, reconsider and redirect and become a successful person in God's eyes, which is a giving person, giving of yourself to him and to others. Bobby and I are celebrating this next week, our 15th anniversary. And it was a few months after our wedding when we faced what was to be one of the greatest tests of our marriage when the issue was whether or not the Lord was going to allow that marriage to continue because of possible illness. And for the three weeks when we lived with this issue of possibly a very short life together, we learned a lesson that has been the cornerstone of our marriage among others and that is this, that we are never the owner always the steward see the beauty about the issue of lordship is that if you think you own it then you stand a good chance of losing it but if you don't own it you can never lose it whether it be your job whether it be your spouse your children your family whatever and if you don't own it you have all the freedom in the world to let it go, to give it away, to share it. Because it isn't yours. For me, the greatest job in all the world, in one sense, would be to be a trustee of a big foundation. To be able just to give away stuff that doesn't belong to me, to benefit others, would be one fun time. My goodness. It would be just Christmas every day of the year. And that's the way it is, because the Lord has given entrusted to our care as stewards when it comes to time and talent as a trustee when it comes to things and guardians when it comes to people things that we are not the owners of but we are to share and give and release and live a life with the open hand and then finally if you're not the owner somebody is and you're accountable to him and it was that last point that became very real to me on a Sunday evening, June 9th, 1976, when we had Rudy Atwood at Grace Church playing the piano, and he played When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I read the number and the, the words in the book as he was playing. And that evening, the, elders, the number of the elders at Grace, we went for a retreat up in Fraser Park to talk about the issues that was facing the church at that time in 1976, nearly 10 years ago. And at that retreat, it became rather obvious that the greatest need of Grace Church was that of an administrator. And it was at that point that the Lord started impressing on my mind that perhaps I should take a little pause from my Work as a lawyer to help the church as an administrator. And what helped a great deal was that song. When I survey the wondrous cross. Upon which the prince of glory died. My greatest gain. What's your greatest gain? I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I decided to take a one year leave of absence that stretched into four years, that is now stretched into ten years. And I have, in those ten years, had the most exciting, the most successful life that I could ever have dreamed and hoped for so my challenge to you is don't get sucked in by the secular thinking that accumulation leads to success the only definition is to give shall we pray Our Father, we are indeed grateful again that we can come to you and address you as someone to whom we are related. And though you be in heaven, you are also very present right here. Sometimes we treat you as if you're just there and not here. And we confess that's wrong. Father, we need to recognize You as the Sovereign King and Lord that You are. For Your name is indeed to be hallowed. Father, we would ask today that You would give us that which we need. You have been so faithful in giving us life, giving us a heart that has beat so well for so long, the ability to breathe without pain. We thank you for meeting our needs. And because you have proven yourself faithful in action as well as in your word, we know as we look forward that we can go forward trusting you. We would ask, Lord, that... You would forgive us for the times when we've decided to go our own way rather than your way. We're prone to do that. We're like sheep. We stray. And as we stray, we have people that stray against us. And we would want to forgive them. Because you have forgiven us everything. We would pray, Lord, that you would give us strength and courage to be on the forgiving end. And forgive those who have trespassed against us. And, Lord, we would ask for strength to avoid the temptations and the snares of a world that sees accumulation as the end all. Help us, Lord, to be giving people, not accumulating people. And we do all this because it's for your kingdom. And we want to be about the business of building your kingdom and building a kingdom lifestyle. Here and now. Because it is for your glory, for your honor, for your power. That we do all of this. And that you are a sovereign God. Forever and evermore. And we are your people. We thank you for this time. For the gift of life. Help us to use it wisely. In thy name we pray. Amen.